I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Since the Supreme Court struck down Roe v. Wade, trigger laws in various states have been put into effect, and the focus has turned to providing continued access for women if needed. What we are seeing is an uptick in demand for abortion pills, which could also set up new legal battles in states with those bans. Also known as medication abortion, it accounted for 54% of all abortions in 2020 because it is less invasive, less expensive, and the pills can be received by mail. For more on what to know, we'll speak to Pam Bellick, health and science reporter at the New York Times. Medication abortion, which involves two pills that patients can take like a day or two apart and can be used up until 10 weeks into a pregnancy. So it's early in a pregnancy, but many, many People who are seeking to terminate a pregnancy know within that time period. So what's been happening in recent years is that more and more people have been choosing that option because it's less expensive, it's less invasive than having, um, having to have surgery. And so it already has become, you know, something that patients are choosing. The difficulty, as you mentioned, is that if you're in a state that is kind of banning all access to abortion or just sort of sharply limiting access to abortion, then it's going to make, you know, access to, to everything, including these pills, much, much harder. And so patients are going to have to travel to yeah. states where it is legal. And that's going to involve, and it's already happening, people are already doing that now. Um, they were doing it sort of to have an uptick when we got the leaked draft of the Supreme Court opinion. So that's already happening, but even since Friday... When the decision came down, organizations that provide medication abortion are just getting a surge in requests, and many of those are coming from patients in states where there are already bans or there are likely to be bans. And so those patients are traveling across the border. Some of them are visiting clinics, but you don't actually have to do that. You can just be just across the border in a state where it's legal, and you can use your phone or your computer to have a consultation with a doctor who is able to prescribe these pills. 
and then you can either go in and get them from that doctor or you can get them mailed to you as long as it is to an address in the state where it's legal. So you could even just be staying in a motel and have the pills mailed to you at the motel or at a post office box or a friend right. who you know in that state. That's, so that is that, that's one that of the, going to be more and more common. That's one of the most interesting things about this is that in a lot of states and a lot of places, right, the access to these pills has become so much easier. As you mentioned, you can do a consultation with a doctor by video, phone, in person, or even filling out an online form. And But they track your IP address. That's why, you know, if you're a woman in a state that has banned abortions, you have to drive over the state line. And just being over the state line is enough. They can track your IP address and then boom, you can have the access to it. But you're right, you'd have to get it mailed to the appropriate addresses and everything. So it's just so weird how this has all been happening. And to your point, some of these organizations that are helping provide access, they're even sending vans like mobile centers, uh, mobile uh, uh, abortion clinics kind of things. I think there's a company called Abortion Delivered. So they're sending uh, like vans to borders of states so that women don't have to travel as far inland if they don't have to. Yeah, and that's something that's just starting this week, actually, in Colorado. There's an organization called Just the Pill, and they have already been, you know, providing telemedicine abortion and mailing abortion pills for a couple of years now, but they are just starting to have a fleet of vehicles, vans, that will sort of roam the borders of inside the borders of states where it's legal that are either you know, next to or close to a lot of states where bans um, are happening. So the one in Colorado is probably expecting um, patients from, uh, you know, Oklahoma, Texas, which is, you know, close by, um, maybe Utah, maybe on the other end of Colorado, South Dakota. You know, these are all sort of states that have these trigger bans or are going to have bans soon. And so, you know, and they're going to keep the clinic kind of on the move so that they can try to avoid protesters and that kind of thing, and also so they can make it as convenient as possible for for people who are coming from different locations in other states. And so where do the legal challenges come in from now? Because, you know, a woman can do her own interstate travel. She can go to a nearby state, get it all done, all that. But where do the legal challenges come from? We don't know exactly, but there are a number of possibilities, and a lot of it depends on what states that have bans, are, how far they're going to go to try to kind of enforce those bans and try to prosecute people. So they could try to reach across their borders and slap a lawsuit on a doctor in Colorado, for example. That will likely, you know, be challenged and it's quite possible that a state will be able to protect its own provider. Um, So um, Colorado will be able to protect that provider from a lawsuit, but that doesn't mean that it will stop a state like Texas from trying to file such a suit or prosecute in some way, because part of the reasoning behind uh, a, a state like that taking such an action is, even if it doesn't think it will stand up in court, it sort of instigates a kind of fear factor, a kind of chilling effect. And so just by going after somebody like that, it it may, you know, make providers scared, make patients scared. The other thing that states could do, and this would be, you know, really uh, significant because typically states have 
try to stay away from kind of going after the pregnant person themselves. You know, it's just not really a good look. It's not really popular to try to put, you know, a woman who's, you know, pregnant in jail. But that may end up being the only kind of legal option that a state that has a ban has because it may be that the pregnant person is the only person who actually is in that state, right? She goes across state lines, sure. gets the medication abortion, and then comes home, presumably. And so she may be the only person who actually is within the state lines, you know, to be prosecuted. So that's something that people are really, you know, um, you know, worried about and, and watching for. Last question I have on all of this is because a medication abortion accounted for 50% of all abortions um, this is uh, from 2020, so it, it's increasingly popular, as you mentioned. It's less invasive, less expensive, all of that. Um, but there's still, obviously, you know, this movement to limit all of this access. Uh, anti-abortion groups would say that this is unsafe still. They'll, they'll call it chemical abortion. Um, but the FDA has approved this, and it's been approved for quite some time now, and they say that it is, continues to be very safe. Yeah, and they, there has been, you know, really kind of a mountain of evidence um, since these drugs have been approved, you know, 20 years ago, that medication abortion is really quite safe. Um, you know, very small percentage of, of complications um, in, you know, a, a minority of cases patients need to kind of go into the hospital to, you know, basically it doesn't work completely. It doesn't expel the pregnancy completely. And so they may need to go into the hospital to have additional um, uh, help with that. But, you know, in terms of safety for, uh, for the, the pregnant patient, it's really quite safe. Yeah. And, um, you know, pregnancy itself, carrying a pregnancy to term, um, poses a lot of health risks. It, it, it can be quite unsafe for a pregnant person. So if you're weighing um, that option, you know, it's really important to take that into account. Pam Bellick, health and science writer at the New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. 
oracle.com slash strategic. Finally for this week, we'll tell you how the Disney adult became one of the most hated groups on the internet. These Disney super fans have been around for a long time, but over the pandemic, the anti-Disney adult sentiment really took hold, as fans were mourning the closures of the parks and online groups were having none of that. For more on this particularly Disney fandom, we'll speak to E.J. Dixon, senior writer at Rolling Stone. The Disney adult is an adult who really, really, really loves Disney to the degree that their entire social media presence revolves around Disney. They go to the parks all the time. Whenever the merch rolls out, they're the first ones in line to buy the limited edition merch. It's somebody who sort of lives and breathes Disney and the company aesthetic. Right. I mean, I think we all know that type of person. For your article, I think you did uh, say you qualify yourself as a Disney adult, too? I guess technically, yeah. A big part of the trip, which I talk about in the piece, is that a lot of Disney adults are sort of classified as like childless millennials because that was a story that went viral in 2019 and and I have a child like so I don't know if I technically qualify as like the purest version of the Disney adults but I mean everything else about it yeah I kind of check all the (laughs) boxes. All right so let's get a little history. Where did we kind of start seeing the origins of what could be described as the Disney adult? It has to do uh, with Tumblr, it has to do with something called Disney bounding, you know, wearing colors of certain characters and whatnot. How did this all get started? The actual phrase is a relatively new invention, but people were making fun of adults who love Disney for decades. I was talking to a professor who told me that a lot of the coverage when Disney started unveiling like its wedding program and its honeymoon program of these new programs was basically just like skewering adults. And this was in the 90s. This was way back in the 90s who would come to the parks and being like, well, why would anybody want to get married next to a cartoon mouse? So the actual excoriation of Disney adults has existed long before the phrase Disney adult actually existed. But what we think of as Disney adults, sort of like the very earnest millennials espousing their love for Disney via like Cheshire Cat gifts, that aesthetic was sort of cemented on Tumblr in the early 2010s, which is where a lot of fandoms on the internet come from. And the phrase Disney adult actually started catching on in 2020, like in the midst of the pandemic, pretty much, which is ironic because the parks were closed during the pandemic, right? Like you wouldn't think that that would be a time where the hatred, you know, the the discourse around the Disney adults would be so high. But it was also a time when a lot of people who really love the parks were advocating for the parks to reopen sort of in the midst of this pandemic that was taking a lot of people's lives and it was causing tumult, you know, throughout the country. And a lot of people that rubbed them around the way, they saw that as a very entitled tone deaf view to take while there was all the suffering going on. And they were like, Oh, look at these Disney adults. All they care about is like their ability to get a Mickey pretzel instead of caring about, you know, the millions of people who are on ventilators across the country. So that's kind of really where the meme began in earnest. Disney bounding. Adults aren't allowed to wear costumes at the parks, right? They don't want to confuse them for the some of the actors and whatnot. But, exactly, but what yeah. people were doing is this term called Disney bounding, where they're kind of an informal cosplay. They'll take the colors of a Cinderella and work that into their outfit for the day. And as you mentioned, right, the, this is all kind of a whole fandom thing. This is where that started growing and the pictures started going and, and it kind of formed into what uh, later the term became a uh, Disney adult. 
Yeah, it wasn't explicitly linked to like the meme Disney adult, and it wasn't exclusive to like adult Disney, like Disney fans or adult Disney fans per se. But it was one of the first activities that really brought to light just how hardcore grown-up Disney fans are. Because when most people think of Disney fans, they think of little kids, right? Or they think of families who are going to their parks with little kids. And yet here was this whole subculture on Tumblr of people dressing as Tinkerbell or dressing as Ursula or dressing as Maleficent, but doing it in a very subtle way so as to avoid the wrath of Disney security. So I think think people found that kind of subversion very funny and also a little bit ridiculous on its face. Like these are the lengths that adult Disney fans go to to express their fandom. And that's perfect uh, leading into this next part, the cringe factor. So looking into this concept of the Disney adult, you spoke to a lot of people, academics, internet culture, fandom experts, just to kind of get a sense of how it all started and what it's become and, and why people, why they are the subject of so much ire on the internet. But in a lot of the people that you spoke to, you said that the word cringe came up so many times. So what, what does that mean? What, what are we looking at there? A cringe is a word that has been applied very liberally across the spectrum by Zoomers to millennials in particular, which I think is a big part of what's going on here that I didn't talk about at length in the article. But there's this whole ongoing meme. It's like sort of tongue in cheek, sort of not that Zoomers are very embarrassed by what they see as like over earnestness on behalf of millennials. Just like these very these outward expressions of like untrammeled emotion over what are essentially corporate totems, right? You know, they, they, they like to make fun of millennials' love of Harry Potter a lot, for instance. And I think that Disney adults are kind of the culmination of that, of Gen Z's sort of disgust with millennials' over-earnestness, and cringe is kind of the first word that they use to malign that. And then so... Uh, something very embarrassing, something very earnest, something very cloying. Yeah, exactly. And then so couple that with, uh, you know, why there's a lot of anger out there. When we talk about a lot of these things, it's okay to be a fan of things and whatnot, but there's a lot of money associated with this. And really to kind of be one of these, you know, hardcore Disney adults, as you mentioned, right? Buy all the merch when it comes out. Go on vacation to the various parks. I mean, at minimum, these can be thousands of dollars. There's this money associated with it and how much people have to spend to be considered in the top tiers of these fandoms, let's say. Yeah, I spoke to a lot of people who, and a lot of people criticize the fandom for this reason. You know, it tends to skew, at least outwardly, very white, very upper middle class, because there's a self-selecting factor here, right? Like, the park tickets cost hundreds of dollars, you know, resort, like, trip packages cost upwards of thousands of dollars. Like, you can only really enjoy the parks to the extent that Disney adults do, if you have the economic capital to do so. And I think that's a really fair criticism. It's also a lot of people are very uncomfortable with the fact that Mickey Mouse is sort of this totem of this giant media conglomerate and this multi-billion dollar brand. And, And I think, you know, that's a very fair criticism too, because obviously Disney is a multi-billion dollar conglomerate and has done a lot of questionably ethical things that, you know, we don't have to discuss at Lampier, but are very easy to research and look into. So I I think that's a fair criticism. But at the same time, I mean, pretty much any fandom is a capitalistic enterprise, right? I mean, you look at people who are going to Star Trek conventions. It's a lot of time, energy, and money that goes to the costumes and conventions and all of that. And so then uh, speaking to 
other, uh, you know, Disney adults and, and people that are really, really into this. Uh, you know, what do they say about reactions to all of this? You know, for a lot of them, you know, they say, hey, I have so many memories of Disney and it just really brings me a lot of pleasure. It is an escape. It's this fantasy escape that I choose to live in. And even for them, there's like tears. There's like levels to it saying, well, you know, I'm not as bad as, as certain uh, of these people that are doing this and whatnot. So even for them, there's a lot of hesitance to like full out uh, declare yourself a fan, a Disney adult and all that. Pretty much every Disney adult I spoke to, like, freely self-identified as, as a Disney adult, but was like very embarrassed to do so. I would sort of place myself in that category. And it's right. because there are a lot of people in the fandom who take it too far. And, you know, there are people like that. You know, everybody was very quick to distance themselves from the person who wrote the uh, Reddit. Am I the asshole post, you know, saying, oh, well, this is like terrible behavior. Like, I would never do this. I would never be a bride who would refuse to feed my guests at the expensive like hiring mickey or minnie but at the same time everybody acknowledged that there is a streak of entitlement that runs within the fandom there's this idea that everybody is pursuing their own individual fantasy their own individual like idealized experience of what they think the park should be or what they think disney should be and that anybody who gets in the way of that is sort of changing that or compromising that like that's an undeniable aspect of the fandom so i think And a lot of Disney adults who are, you know, at the very least critical of the company, and there and there are some that aren't, but most people are. They have enough perspective to see that there is something a little bit cringe about this. There is something a little bit embarrassing about this. But ultimately, what it comes down to for them is like, who cares? You know, is, is this hurting anybody? Like, the world is really hard. Like, if, if I can go to the parks for a day and ride on Jungle Cruise and have a Dole Whip and forget, like, all the bills I have to pay and all the stressors of everyday life, then, like, how does this harm anybody? And ultimately, I think that that's true. EJ Dixon, senior writer at Rolling Stone, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.